0: Star jump sequence terminates, Captain.
1: Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast oh, sheet. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer.
0: Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive.
1: Extreme magnification.
0: Aye, sir.
1: The center of the galaxy. And there's our
2: black hole.
0: The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this
1: on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance from This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space, where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the Event Horizon. Good evening. Or morning, or afternoon, whichever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Each week, The Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction and fantasy. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio. Yes, this is my first time doing this, and with me is Susan Lee Fox, the station's executive producer. Say hi, Susan. Hi, Susan. Tonight hi, we are, <laughs> tonight we are pleased and delighted to have with us as our special guest, American science fiction and fantasy novelist Jody Lynn Nye. Jody has authored or co-authored some 40 novels. And over 100 short stories, and her her humorous series range from uh, the contemporary, The Magic Touch and Mythology 101, to military science fiction, Strong Arm Tactics, and a new series beginning with View from the Imperium. She has been an instructor of the Fantasy Writing Workshop at Columbia College in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and teaches the annual Science Fiction Writing Workshop at Mm -hmm. DragonCon. Jody began collaborating with Robert Lynn Asprin on the Myth Adventures series in 2003 with the publications of Myth Told Tales and then the novel Myth Alliances. After Robert Asprin's death in 2008, she continued the humorous fantasy series and is also writing sequels to his contemporary fantasy series, Dragons. Welcome, Jody Lynn Nye.
0: Thank you very much for having me here.
1: And we're very glad to have you with us. So, um, what is the, is, is the name of the new book that you're working on, Dragons? No. No, no I, that's not. It's a, that's the book that, this, it's this, you're working on the sequel to that.
0: I turned in another Dragons book. It's already in the publisher's hands, has been for some months, and it's called Dragons Run. Uh-huh. In fact, I suspect I'm going to get the edit any day because uh, I got a phone call from, the publisher asking if they should leave room for a dedication page. So I, I have a feeling I'm going to get a lot of paper dropped on my doorstep very soon. I am working on the next Myth Adventures book, though, yes.
1: Uh-huh. Oh, you are? Yes, I am. So so how... Uh, uh, Susan, you're much more familiar with the Myth Adventures series than I am.
2: My goodness, yes. We Well, it's been going for 35 years now, and uh, can't believe it's been that long. But how do you step into that and, and keep the voice uh, consistent. Yeah, I'm, one, of,
0: uh, one of my skills is that I'm a pretty good literary mimic. I can adopt somebody else's style pretty well. And as a result, there when I collaborate with someone, there isn't the jarring uh, transition when you're reading from one person's section to another person's. I worked with Anne McCaffrey. I worked with John Ringo. I worked with Piers Anthony. And I was able to step into their styles, at least mostly. There there are always quirks and things that I wouldn't have uh, in my toolbox, but over time I start to pick them up. For example, uh, Bob liked to use everybody and anybody, and I tend to use everyone and anyone, and I had to become aware of something like that. It's the little subtleties that can change a person's perception of, of a style. Oh, gosh. Well that's Guns. true. You yeah. did
2: uh, overlap on a number of the books.
1: Yes, how yeah,
2: you how did
1: And you worked with him you worked with him uh, in a collab on a collaborative basis so you had to, yes. you had the we, ability we were to We weren't often in the same
0: the um, area. We were in two, we lived in two different cities. Bob and I have never lived in the same Before place. the internet era that had to be a little difficult. Before internet. good internet, yes, it was extremely difficult. It required telephone calls and CompuServe. Uh, but mostly, when we started to work together, it was on License in, License Invoked, which was our first novel together. Not even the Myth Adventures. Oh, I remember everyone, that one. Everyone, uh, it came out from Bain Books. and. A lot of people said, "Oh, you two should work together." And the two of us looked at each other and said, "No." Nah. <laughs> <laughs> we gave each other the "I got a rep to protect" conversation. Most it started with Bob, and then I reminded him that I may not have had the same kind of track record he had, but I had a rep to protect too. Mm-hmm. And my husband, who is a book packager, put us together. He, he thought we would work well. He's one. Of, he was one of Bob's best friends. Mm. So. And we, we sat together to kick around this idea for a, a book set in New Orleans. It's a it's a fantasy. Uh-huh. It's got spies, magic, and rock and roll.
1: Well, that sounds like a great combination right there.
0: It was a lot of fun. We always meant to go further with it. And maybe someday I will try and pick up with the two characters and uh, do another one in my copious spare time. Uh. But I, I heard the capital letters then just, I did, uh, I heard them. It was, it was, uh, the, the ironic italics, uh, I'm afraid.
1: So do you have <laughs> more projects in your head that you could possibly ever execute, or is it, uh...
0: Always. And I, I actually have three books on under contract right now, and I'm, I'm expecting another contract how any day. How much can you tell us about those? How, how much can I what? How much can you tell us about those? Well, two of the books are the Next, in my view from the Imperium series, which is sort of like Jeeves and Wooster in space. Oh, I love that. It is humorous (laughs) science fiction military. I have a feckless young lordling who has entered the space navy. His mother is first space lord, and she expects him to behave. Well, in his own view, he is behaving. (laughs) Fortunately, there is uh, Commander Parsons, who is a very old friend of the family who sets out to protect Thomas pretty much from himself. But unbeknownst to Thomas, there are things going on behind him. There are wheels within wheels, and he is merely one of the cogs. Uh, he begins to find out something about that, and over time he'll become more involved. He's, uh, there's, there's a bit of espionage going on, and he is useful cover in some now, cases. I see.
1: So it sounds like he's, he there's a, there's a big character arc going on in there.
0: Oh yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, he he sounds like he starts out being fairly feckless and
0: Yes. And he acquires feck. He does indeed. He becomes somewhat more feckful, but not (laughs) enough interesting. I like Thomas. He's he's good hearted, in spite of the fact that the nobility has come to become very well, pretty much useless in this uh, futuristic Imperium—it's ten thousand years from now. Mm-hmm. He wants to be useful. He wants to—he wants to serve, but That's he has—he but a, he has nobility. He is nobility.
2: He is Lord <laughs> <of Copenhagen. laughs>
1: and has nobility. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> oh. So you have four contracts going on at once. Uh, do you write all the books at once, or you have to do them serially, or? How do you get through that many books in in uh, uh, a timely fashion do you do you write like mad for four months and I mean what's what's your process well I
0: work every day i I get up and after feeding the cat and making some tea or cocoa mm-hmm. I sit down and I work and I work until I'm starting to write gibberish or my mind is wandering too far away when when I'm starting a project I get I get the least done I may crank out a few hundred words, a few thousand words. The closer I get to the end of a project, the faster I work and the longer I sit at my computer. Oh, because By the, the time more I'm of it makes the, sense. Yeah, it, it does. So my my work arc looks different depending on where I am on a book. It just so happens that I am working on two of them at once, and that has never happened before, but they don't seem to be mixing, and I'm happy about that.
1: So are they in different styles?
0: Yes, they are. And they're in entirely different universes, one myth, one Thomas. Mm-hmm. So the mindset of the characters is different, the settings are different, and they sort of produce different, uh, they, they set off different mgrams in my brain.
1: From what I understand from the writing process, uh, you have to really know your characters well. It's not You don't just sit down at the typewriter and s- start at page one, it was a dark and stormy night. You have to really understand your characters uh, before uh, before one page gets written.
2: Well, Gene, mm-hmm. that's going to be uh, difficult, or it's going to be different for each uh, series. I mean, you can get to know Skeev and Oz from the previous books. Thomas, on the other hand, you know, he has to live entirely in her head, and that's that's going to be a very different process, indeed.
0: Oh, yes. It it is much easier when they are yours, because you know all the quirks. Uh, You're not going to trip over something that is in the back of the other author's mind. So Bob and I had quite a lot of detailed conversations about the way that his characters behave with one another. I think the most beautiful thing about the myth series is that at the bottom of it is unassailable, imperishable friendship. Friendship. The characters will, in, who are in Myth, Inc. will never let each other down. And no matter what else happens, what, no matter what else you see happening, that's still going on. I so, take it that this
2: uh, is very much characteristic of the man himself. He was a very fierce friend. And people who were his friends were friends for life and beyond.
0: That is very true. Bob also had tremendous charisma. And when he was talking to you, you were the only person in the room. He would fix his gaze on you, not not in a in a creepy, staring fashion, but in a, a very warm and intent manner. It was uh kind of overwhelming for some of the younger fans who were already flustered to be in his presence, because as you know, he had quite a reputation in many ways. He had a track record, he was uh Noted in the Society for Creative Anachronism, and I wouldn't know anything <laughs> about her? that.
1: She's being modest. She's got uh, Susan has been in the Society for the for Creative Anachronism for,
2: for thirty three years. Yeah, yeah.
0: Let me see. When did I get in? Uh, Nineteen seventy
1: eight. Oh, so you have Ooh, that in I'm common. A I'm a noob. <laughs> <laughs> so, what part of the country were you active in in the SEA?
0: I'm in the Middle Kingdom. I used to I used to be active in the Shire of Vanished Wood, but I have not been active in many years. Oh okay. I don't have the time. I, I still see some of my friends from time to time and uh uh-huh. I still turn around if somebody calls me Bethany. <laughs> yep. It never stops being your name. Well, in my case, I don't know what your SCA name is. Oh was. I'm sorry, Selene Colfox at your service, Madame. Ah, Bethany Scripner. And uh I had a lot of fun in it, but I I left for kind of the same reason that Bob did. The politicking got to be too annoying. You got a life. And I got a life, and he got a life. So uh, Yang the nauseating retired from the uh, loyal opposition. (laughs) By the time I joined the SCA, Bob was already gone. He had already quit, but his legend lived long. But the legends were still there. Oh, still are. He had, he had begun the Dark Horde, and he heard that there, uh, while I was there, there was a schism in the Horde. And it broke apart into three pieces. And he was very, very troubled by that until he found out what they were calling themselves. They were Classic Horde, Horde Light, and Cherry Horde. So <laughs> he, was, he stopped being worried about it. They were doing fine. It
2: was said... For, for some time uh, that you had to be a member of the SCA in order to uh, sell a fantasy trilogy and uh, this, It this, seemed like that, didn't it? It did seem like that because you had your, you know, Paul, a- Paul Anderson, you had your Catherine Curtis, Catherine <laughs> But all of these people kind of backed off of the SCA when their writing careers actually took off You could live with your fantasy world and make a living
0: No, I don't think it's so much that. as You simply run out of time. You can't spend Friday driving down to an event and Monday driving back and your entire weekend shot just because you want to sleep outside and and wash your dishes with bleach. There was uh, suddenly that's four days out of your writing time. And uh, some people who are active in the SCA go to an event every other week. You can't do that.
2: They don't have writing
0: careers. Right, because so seldom do writing careers make you a livable living, so you probably also have a second job or a second income of some kind. So the SCA, being a lifestyle in itself, has to take a back seat.
1: I see that you've been working with a number of, of publishers, uh, Tor Books, uh, Wildside Press, yes. Ace Books. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the... Uh, difference between the different publishers and the way you have to work with them and uh, what, do you pick one over the other or do they pick you?
0: In many cases they pick you. The tour, the first four tour books that I did were part of a series that was packaged by my husband Bill Fawcett who is a book packager and, and book arranger. He came up with this idea for doing choose your own adventures that were set in licensed worlds. Established fantasy and science fiction worlds. The Crossroads series were individual adventures and the Combat Command series were taking a unit of some kind of company, a fleet, uh, some some measure of, of military might, and taking it through what would be essentially an adventure in that world. Now, Tor Books is the one who was interested I in it. I want to play that. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I uh, Anne McCaffrey, at the time that the package was proposed, said that she couldn't play, that she wouldn't allow Pern to be used uh, because she had promised her editor, Judy Lynn Delray of Delray Books, that she would never, Mm -hmm. while Judy Lynn was alive, publish with anybody else. But in the midst of this, during the, between the proposal and and contracts, Judy Lynn passed away, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and Anne said that we could do Pern. I had signed up for a couple of different series and i dropped two of them in order to be able to work on the Pern things and i'd loved doing it i loved meeting Anne, even though it scared the pants off me but the one i didn't the other one i didn't let go of was the encycloped the the xanth ones because i i do love a good pun and i got along very well with piers anthony very very nice man very intense person so uh Tor books is the one that bought those uh The Dragon Lover's Guide to Parent, of course, had to be Del Rey, Mm -hmm. and published through Del Rey. And Warner Books, I actually knew the editor. The nice thing about fantasy and science fiction, as you probably already know, is that it's the one genre where you can be friends with the editors and just have casual chats with them. So I met Brian Thompson, who was also a friend of my husband's, and we started talking. And I said, what do you think of this idea I had for a, miss, uh, a fantasy series? And he said, I love it. So I sent him a proposal. He, he bought it. And I started working for him. And the, uh, let me see, what what do I have after that? I've got my bibliography up so I that I can see it. Because we were already working with Ace on some other projects, uh They wanted a science fiction series from me, something different. So along came Taylor's Ark, my my lady doctor in space, and her merchant husband, and their many animals. I always meant to do more on that series, and I probably still will. We worked with Bain Books. That, That was enormously rewarding also. Bill had packaged a couple of series for... Other noted science fiction writers, David Drake and C.J. Cherry, things that they didn't have time to do themselves. So he set them up with a trio of junior writers each.
1: I'm and, absolutely fascinated by uh, this window into the uh, science fiction writing and publishing industry. I had no idea it functioned this way.
0: There are many, many different things about science fiction that are not true of most of the other genres.
1: And which, what in particular? I mean it's obviously you have this the social aspect of it uh, you can that
0: is an important part of it. when you can sit in the bar with an editor or in the restaurant or some place where the the two of you have a chance to chat, you can pitch books. I know that you can pitch books in uh, romance genres to certain editors, but a lot of them want to be approached more formally. In the case of science fiction editors, I have done verbals. Quite frequently. I started out with uh, the view from the Imperium series, mm-hmm. talking to originally Jim Bain, the, the publisher who is now no longer with us, during a room party at a Worldcon.
1: Oh, that's perfect. I mean, this is yeah. my personal experience uh, in dealing with... Uh, I mean, I've been doing special effects and uh, mm-hmm. for... Uh, since 1979 really working in and out of the industry for quite a while and what Mm I what I found is that you can tell probably more about the creative capacity of a person when you meet them in person than you uh, than you can from any static description of their work Uh, and obviously this the science fiction industry uh, publishing industry has picked up on this and uh, well
0: that said some publishers don't want to necessarily meet or have pitch sessions. Uh, my husband and I write a column for the Science Fiction Writers of America Bulletin called Conventional Wisdom. Mm. <laughs> <about> things... <laughs> Thank you. It's uh, articles that, nonfiction, uh-huh. give especially new authors ideas of how best they can use their time at conventions. And one of them is about doing business at conventions. I think, it was, the, in fact, it was the last one to come out.
1: I spend a lot of time at uh, at local conventions just talking mm-hmm. to um, people who are interested in doing things with Krypton Radio, and I'm very surprised at how many of them there are. And uh, I, it's, it really is... Uh, people who go to the conventions don't realize just how much of this is going on in their midst. It's mm-hmm. It's really kind sure. of fun. It's kind of a delight. And my son... Uh, who goes to the conventions with us. Uh, Mm -hmm. He is both constantly amazed at exactly what does go on and irritated at the fact that his dad is always doing this instead of going out and having fun with him.
0: (laughs) Well, I know now three generations who have been uh, going to conventions, uh, coming up on four. Uh, mm -hmm. And after a while, the, the kids either adopt it or they go off and uh, I don't know become become terribly serious lecturers somewhere.
1: It as a knee jerk reaction to what the parents. But
0: do. it is a lifestyle, and it is its it own is. society. So it has its own mm-hmm. vocabulary. It has odd customs that would look as strange as any from any foreign land if you just walked in off the street. I remember my first convention vividly. And <laughs> I had no idea what these people were doing. How old is your son? He's fourteen okay
1: he'll be he'll be fifteen in July-
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I think the exciting thing about uh about conventions is that they're s- sort of starting to bleed off into the internet and we have a global community now that can interact in real time and that wasn't possible before
0: no you had to get your your fix of people like you at a convention
1: yes, and that was the only place you could do it
0: It was the only place.
1: And now we have it uh, around the clock, 24-7, and it makes something like Krypton Radio a possibility. And and in fact, we're the only science fiction and comic book radio station in the world, and I'm surprised that there aren't more. But um, one of the things that uh, we're trying to do with the Event Horizon is introduce new writers Mm -hmm. and help them get... uh, exposure and uh, for their for their work and introduce the world to them and them to the world mm-hmm. what's what's been your experience with uh with new writers you mentioned being in awe of Anne McCaffrey and I'm sure that uh uh, uh other people have come up to you at conventions and oh, been yes. just as starstruck how do you uh, have you have you noticed this sort of thing happening and is, how, do, how does it affect you
0: well I, I find it um a little embarrassing and I'm gratified that I have touched somebody's life enough for them to want to come up and say so. That means a lot to me. But all the same, I'm, I'm blushing and trying to turn the compliments away. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean this. I, I'm enjoying myself as much as I'm entertaining other people. I really love wow. what I do. So uh, if, if somebody else is enjoying it also, then I'm doubly happy the paycheck the paycheck is good but we writers work alone it's so nice to get feedback and thanks to the internet i get more feedback now than i did before uh when you had to write a letter and send it to the publisher who would eventually round it up and put it into an envelope and send it to you you got very little feedback often extremely delayed now it's immediate they'll they'll look for your name and because i have a unique name it's much easier to find me uh, my husband is not so lucky. There is even another man with his name in our same zip code. We get his mail all the time.
1: Oh boy! <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I get I get messages from people, and they're so nice. How many
1: of the 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 up and coming writers that you've been contacted by? Uh, how many of them turn out to actually have the spark?
0: Now when, now and again. Well, I'll tell you. When I taught at Columbia College. I saw three that I thought were very very promising, one in particular had an imagination that I just was in awe of he He found things to to play with that I would never have gone for i and i want I wanted to see more of what he does. I hope he goes into it. I think he was not particularly interested in fantasy or science fiction, which was terrible because he had such a gift for it um now and again I see somebody that I have no problem believing will be published in the future I was on a panel a few years ago with, with a, a young lady and this is this is where I got to feel very old she said that when she was a kid Mythology 101, my, my earliest fantasies were her favorite books <gasps> and <laughs> and here she was a published author of, of her own uh, in fact a very good published author and she had really loved my books so i found that enormously flattering and of course humbly so, so there there have there have been a few there have been some that i say i know i'm going to see that person later
1: that's excellent i'm i'm really inspired by that
0: mm-hmm.
1: i i am uh, i'm constantly uh, both dismayed by the the few creative people that I see in the world and amazed that the ones that I do see turn out to be such uh, remarkable people and that uh, I seem to be running into them consistently. Every time I turn around, there's some sort of connection with somebody else. I just found out, for example, Susan and I just found out that uh, uh, two of our radio personalities are second cousins.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And they had no idea. They're second cousins. I I think one of the the one of the mo- mother's side by by marriage, but they're related. And uh
0: you go back far enough everybody's related. Well, oh, yeah, yes. but in this case. <laughs> this was I, a bit just, closer. You invite second cousins to weddings. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm
1: Yeah, you do. And it's I am just struck by uh, by how small the creative community really is, and everybody really does know everybody.
2: Well, there really are only 40 real people in the world. The rest are non-player characters.
0: That's exactly true. Or props. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Prompts. Or props. Yeah, That's, some of them are, yeah. I have to admit.
0: Well, it's it's funny how, how connections come about, how, how people know somebody who knows someone else. It's the sort of six degrees of Kevin Bacon. But uh, Mm -hmm. I understand that there's a list online that connects every science fiction writer in the business to Isaac Asimov.
2: Okay.
0: And I believe I'm three degrees from Isaac Asimov, which is very entertaining.
2: Oh, very But I, I
0: didn't know about this list. I thought it was kind of fun.
1: I actually saw Isaac Asimov speak at a convention once, but it was an audience full of, I think, or 600 people mm-hmm. and I was probably in the back row but I was in the same room with them.
0: Oh. I was personally leered at by him at the uh, first Baltimore Worldcon I went to. <laughs> oh <laughs> hey now. yeah, He's, he, he was quite a guy. I, I loved his sense of humor. I loved the way that reading his work put his ideas into my brain without seeming to go through literature. It, it was a special gift that I don't know if anybody else has had uh, has. But it's the he's the only one that I know of that does that quite as well.
1: He had the most open, accessible writing style. It that was is like
0: what I mean. It's clear, it's so clear understandable. blue skies. It <laughs> is,
1: and he wrote uh, he wrote so many books that were not science fiction at all, but but uh, nonfiction works.
0: Oh yes, uh, pure science.
1: Yeah, Pure Science, something over 400 books, one of the most prol- prolific writers in history.
0: I think the number was 467. I saw him oh on a talk gosh. show once with uh, oh Alan Alda, who came in, sat down in the chair, looked at him and said, why aren't you home writing a book? <laughs> 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 in that fact, I wrote a story right. for a an anthology, uh, and it, it part of it takes place in heaven, and one of the uh, angels comes into the... Is is speaking to another one, and and another angel comes into the office and says, Asimov needs more paper." <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist.
1: So your characters are obviously uh, very vibrant, living, breathing souls. That I sincerely uh, hope so. Yeah, and so do you draw from people you know? Are are these? Are are these inspired by some of the people you've met? No. How much, uh, they're not. They're They're... they're really
0: not. I I try not to do that because you tend to, if I write about a real person, then I start to ascribe to them characteristics that belong to that person that may not belong in my story.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Although I have shockingly met people who look so much like my characters that it's just breathtaking. Uh, Shona Taylor, who is my my lady doctor of of the Taylor's Ark series. Mm Mm-hmm. At a Worldcon, I walked—for uh, I, I, some reason, I, was, I sat down next to this woman at a banquet or, or at a, a mass event of some kind, and I looked over, and I was sitting next to Shona Taylor. She had walked out of my head and became a uh, Canadian uh, lady who had been in the military, and I was just stunned because she, she was almost, in every particular, the same person I had imagined— what are you doing here?
2: It was it was yeah, get back in my head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to it turned out to be a good thing that she was not in my head. She's she's a very nice person. She and her husband became friends of mine.
1: Oh, good. oh that's marvelous.
0: I've uh, I have looked for models because certainly sometimes the artists ask me, "Can you tell me somebody that this looks like, so that mm-hmm. we can use uh, a photograph or something as a model?" And I seldom do. Uh, my, my my book, The Magic Touch, the, the young man on the cover is based on an actor that I saw once. He's changed so much as he's gotten to be a man, but when he was a boy, he was exactly right for my character.
1: Do these characters, do they sometimes commandeer your storylines or do you have your plots yes. so under control that uh, that you keep them in line?
0: No, they become so real that they they sort of resi- they don't get up in my head and say now stop that Jody they they merely refuse to bend toward a way that they would not act they take on such a reality for me that i feel wrong trying to push them into a behavior that is wrong for them when they take on that kind of reality it's easy to follow them in, and yes the plot will bend and sometimes that means changing the book but it's usually for the better because I have created a character that is real enough to carry the story. And usually it's for the better. I, when I was working on the Dreamland books for uh, Bain Books, I had a couple of characters, secondary characters, ba- uh, almost not quite background, but very much secondary characters who started to like each other <laughs> and got married uh-huh. at the end of the book, uh, to my enormous surprise. But it worked out well. It's, it's just I had not, when I first created them, anticipated them starting to like each other. Well,
1: in Aristotle's Poetics, um, he uh, outlined the fact that plot drives the character and character drives the plot. And the two are inextricable. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you can't think of one without... Oh, they are. You can't really develop or think about one without the other.
0: No, because the character, the main character particularly has to be the very right person for the story to be about. And therefore, to substitute someone else or to find someone who is not of those characteristics will make the plot fall flat.
1: Well, it's kind of like, uh, and this is a sort of a bizarre comparison. It's kind of like George Lucas's concept of the force. Uh, We direct it, but it guides our destinies. Mm
0: -hmm. So...
1: It's it's kind of the same thing. The shape of the character defines the 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 space in which that character inhabits, and the space in which the character inhabits also de- helps shape the character as Winston he Winston Churchill
0: said, "We shape our buildings, and thereafter they shape us."
1: Oh, I like that one. That summarizes it very nicely. Mm-hmm. So, how comp? How many? How many uh, story threads? How many subplots do you usually incorporate in your works at a time? How many, what do you think is overload?
0: I work well with, I think, three uh, behind the main plot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a little simpler than that, but usually there is something else going on for a purpose. And I always make it a point to bind them up at the end, unless, of course, they're part of a larger arc in a series. But if it's a standalone book, everything gets tied up towards the end. It's not fair to the reader. They will lose faith in you if you don't take care of everything that you promised them.
1: So the story arcs uh, for the Mm -hmm. subplots, do they always do... uh, Do you find yourself intentionally uh, using the subplots to sort of prod your uh, main storyline along? Uh, Or do you use them as accents to... They're always
0: connected in some way. Otherwise, what are they doing in your book?
1: Well, that's a point. But... uh, I mean you can you can drive the you can you have three different choices with a subplot. you can either mimic or mirror what's going on uh, with the with the main character
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know just sort of as an echo to un- underscore it or you can use it as a counterpoint
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, or you can use the uh, the subplots uh, as a as a lens to focus what the main character is going to do next. They can precede it's, rather than proceed.
0: It's, uh, it's very your main useful to use doing. them as, for example, a contrast. Um, Ovation ran over the last few nights uh, the television video of a musical that I happened to be in when I was back at theater camp, Once Upon a Mattress.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I love this. I love that musical so much. I played... One of the parts of Prince uh, Princess Winifred the Woe-Be-Gone,
2: oh, who was that's originally the, uh, played by
0: Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett. Yes, yes that's the Carol mm-hmm. Burnett. In that, there and is... I, and the are man, you shy? Uh, I beg your pardon? And are you that shy? I am that shy. Oh, well, I was up until I met my man, and then, I, of course, I am no longer one man shy. <laughs> oh. That's... You've never heard the song. You must hear the song. In fact, yes. it... it It's a delightful musical. It was written by Mary Rogers, who is the daughter of Richard Rogers, as in Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh And it is The Princess and the Pea, retold in a much more adult fashion. But there is Winifred and her beau, or would-be beau, Prince Dauntless, whose mother completely dominates his life. And the other romance is between Sir Harry and Lady Larkin. And they have a much more traditional romance, that they are very much in love, and they are a very beautiful couple. Uh, And he is a dashing knight, and she is a lovely lady-in-waiting, leaving out, of course, the part that she's pregnant. Um, But Winifred and, and Dauntless are not your traditional couple. Of course, he is a mama's boy, not that he necessarily wants to be, and she's a hoyden. She is she enters the castle by swimming the moat and climbing the, sc- the curtain wall
1: oh my goodness
0: oh it's a wonderful plan. she's it's oh, delightful
1: <laughs> so uh me- most of your books seem to be um science fantasy or fantasy oriented and comedic uh and you have some do you do hard science fiction at all
0: if by hard science fiction you mean completely dependent upon physics and no such thing as faster than light travel, no, not yet. Uh, that's not to say I won't. I'm working on a, an anthology. One of, one of one of the books that I have under contract is an anthology with, with Dr. Mike Brotherton, who is the director of the Launchpad Project. This is a marvelous project. It brings authors to the School of Astronomy and Astrophysics in... Laramie, Wyoming. And for a week you have your head stuffed with hard science with physics and uh, Oh that's fantastic. Things that are going so on that in you can
1: I mean it, it's so easy to write science fiction that just comes out as gobbledygook because you have no idea oh, yes. what you're talking about. You have to have that foundation. Mike but, uh, wants people
0: you, Mike wants people to learn better science so that they can write more science. We're we're falling so far behind in the STEM Categories, science, technology, uh, engineering, and math,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and he wants to encourage writers to produce more accessible science fiction that will encourage people to be interested in science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, Jeffrey Landis, marvelous writer, was also one of the lecturers during that week, and I, I felt like the little boy in the Far uh, Side cartoon who raises his hand and says, "Miss Wormwood, can I go now? My brain is full." Yeah. <laughs> But I got I got past that, and I I have learned a good deal more science than ever I knew before, uh, and I have resources now, not only Mike but some of the others, to write hard science. Should I want to, we're working on an anthology of stories from the Launchpad alumni, and that should be a lot of fun. I've I've received a couple of really brilliant stories so far.
1: Well, I don't think hard science necessarily has to uh, has to prohibit the idea of faster than light travel
0: yeah
2: then you like that leaves out an awful lot of uh, fiction we consider hard sf i i thought the ship who sang books for instance were pretty hard (laughs) as science fiction goes
0: no there was a great deal of extrapolation in that there there was a good deal of it the the real definition of hard science fiction is where all the science really works uh, where we don't use what we call conventions such as faster-than-light travel or being able to talk over great distances in real time.
1: Well, um, there is uh, there are some new developments, though, that, uh, yes. that might sort of ease that road a little bit, uh, the first of which being that Spanish mathematician whose name escapes me at the moment. I can look it up. Thank God for the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, who came up with a way... Um, it might have been Mexican, uh, who came up with a way to, uh, from a mathematical standpoint, to define faster-than-light travel as being a space-time bubble that moves with a ship stationary in the middle of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Well, there, they, there
0: are a lot of theories that are, are used right now. One of the things we talked about in Launchpad was uh, nexus points, um, jump jump points, that scientists now believe are possible, but at the time that I first started to learn about faster-than-light travel or the possibility of it. I heard a noted science fiction writer who also worked for NASA say that it wasn't possible under what we knew now. We uh-huh. extrapolate forward all the time.
1: I found it. It's the Alcubierre Drive. Um, it's a okay. Lorentzian manifold
2: well, I think Star Trek pretty much postulated that forty years ago.
1: That's the interesting part of this: is that science fiction mm-hmm. has pr- uh, pretty accurately predicted this thing. Um, the
0: we've predicted everything but the internet. Um. Yeah, pretty much. I thought Asimov had that. Uh. Can you send me that link? I'd love to have that. Uh, sure. I let's see. It's remarkable the things that people have come up with that later came to be where right now people are talking about George Orwell and it's spooky the things that he came up with in the softer science of sociology. He understood the way society can change and his predictions have come true in a rather frightening fashion. It would have to be frightening. We are under the eye of Big Brother for example. Hmm.
1: I seem to let's see here. Deal
2: with it later, okay?
1: Yeah. i here it is. <clears throat> I'm still learning the Skype interface too while we're doing okay. this. Thank you. I just sent you the link via the Skype Thank you chat. very
0: much. Mm-hmm. And I the the story that I was writing for Launchpad in fact there was a story in uh the the London Mail online that is going to make me change how I present the science in my story, how Starlight could help map alien worlds thousands of light years away. And I realized that we now have something that I was extrapolating towards, and I'm going to have to change things a little bit. And
1: what is that? Hmm? What is the thing that we're extrapolating towards, or rather that we have that you were projecting?
0: Mapping, uh, Mapping worlds so far away we can barely see them. Now we get new planets every day in the... Yes, the, the Kepler project yes. is fabulous.
1: There are actually some new optics routines that can take smeary light and reassemble mm-hmm. them into, uh, into focused images by watching, the, watching the, exactly. the image over time and see how the fuzziness changes and then taking the average of that and focusing mm-hmm. it all, all down into a single sharp image.
0: And how quickly everything changes because at first they were using that technology just to, just to verify that there was a planet there. And now they can tell so much more about it.
1: And, and I was also fascinated to learn that uh, uh, the, the very far away faint points of light, the, the galaxies on the edge of what we can perceive, uh, didn't register on our very, very sensitive cameras uh, until somebody had an accident, they bumped mm-hmm. the camera, and uh, all of a sudden, right. all of these extra little galaxies a- appeared on the image. And what had happened was that the individual mm-hmm. cells in the the detector weren't triggering because there was no there was no edge crossing event on the edge of the sensor, so, mm-hmm. and it took that vibration to trigger them.
0: It it helps because galaxies are fuzzy. At this distance, the only one that's visible to the naked eye besides our own is Andromeda.
1: The appeal of of, 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 uh, the more technical science fiction uh, um, seems to be more like puzzle Mm -hmm. solving and and you're you're inserting a technological issue into a social situation and seeing how the people uh, in the story resolve that or, or work around it or uh, see how it drives their...
0: Well, or, or, the, or the, the technology is the, the puzzle itself, that you're trying to solve a technological problem. Of course, the stories are always about people. They're always about people. But where you put your focus uh, will help define whether or not you're talking about soft science or softer science fiction or hard science fiction. So
1: what would you like people to know about this new book in the Dragon series you're working on? Dragons? Yes,
0: well, I left you a cliffhanger at the end of Dragon's deal, and by the way, in spite of the cover, I wrote that. Um, Bob had already left us by then. The second dragon's uh, manuscript, Dragon's Luck, uh, landed landed on our doorstep to edit um, two weeks after he passed away. So the third book is also oh in spite of the cover. The fourth one uh, picks up on the, the cliffhanger that was depending from Dragon's Deal.
2: Oh, good! We won't have to kill you.
0: Oh, well, <laughs> and wait until you get to the one that uh, I came up with for the next book after that, and I just came up with the title for it last night. So I, I'll give you the title, but I won't tell you anything about it. It's Dragon's Deuce.
1: Dragon's Deuce.
0: Mm-hmm. All of them have. Gambling names or something like that, uh, cl- close to card card playing or gambling of some kind. And that's yeah, a- I
1: just have this mental image of a dragon driving a a nineteen forties
2: red coupe. With a- <laughs> it's my little dragon coupe.
0: <laughs> you know what I got? That's right. Well, Griffin needs a new car anyway. His his <laughs> so heavily. But there's no place to park in the quarter anyway, so it's not necessary.
1: Well, Jody Lynn Nye, it has been a great pleasure. I'm yes. very glad you... I, oh, Thank you. Good. I had a lot of fun. And so did we. And we learned a lot, uh, not only about writing, but how to run this darn software. And we certainly appreciate your, your uh, willingness to appear on Krypton Radio, and we hope to have you back.
0: I would love to come back. Just, just ask.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. This is Gene Turnbow for Krypton Radio, and with Jody Lynn Nye and Susan Lee Fox, have a great evening. And we are off.
0: Oh, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, we had
1: yeah, a little bit of a rough start, mostly me having all the roughness.
2: Uh, I got, I'm, boy, I've got to find that off button. Here we go. You have been listening to Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon, Where the Impossible Happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. Join us next week on Saturday, 9 p.m. Pacific, for the next episode of The Event Horizon, Where the Impossible Happens.